me up. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, David set me up with today's passage, and we're going to do the best to try to cover this one. Uh, we're in chapter 24, which is one of those odd chapters that nobody likes to preach through um, unless you really... How many of you are really into, like, end times? Like, yeah? That's cool. But you notice that most people aren't. And that's, okay, that's also really cool. Um, we're going to be talking about end times a little bit, but I'm not going to get into the weeds of the events and, and the timing and all of that. That's really like a, a six or eight week course of three hours a, a night to go through that. I want to just try to track with what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapters 23 and 24. And at the end of chapter 23, Jesus makes a statement that he would come again, and at the beginning of chapter 24, he looks at the temple with his disciples and he said, all those stones that you see, the, the big temple, those massive blocks, there's going to come a day where not one of them is left on top of the other. So the beginning of chapter 24, the disciples have some really good questions. They want to know, in Matthew 24, 3, tell us, when will these things happen and what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they want to know, what is the sign? What can we be looking for to know that we're getting close? to these things happening, and when is it going to happen? Now, they seem like reasonable requests, right? Well, from their question, first of all, I want you to realize that they perceive two separate events, possibly. The end of the age and the coming of, of Jesus being two separate things. The end times, we often refer to as eschatology, as the study of end times, or you might hear the word eschaton. That's from the Greek word that means like the end. Right? So you have this eschaton. So if you ever hear that phrase, you're like, what are they saying? He's saying end times. He's just trying to sound smart. Right? The second coming of Christ is referred to as the perusia. How many of you have heard of that phrase before? Perusia. It's the English way that we pronounce the Greek word that means coming. It makes you sound really intelligent when you use those words. So now you can go out there and go, oh, Sunday, we studied the perusia and the eschaton. And people be like, oh. Basically, we're talking about the end times and the second coming of Jesus. Now, if I was one of the disciples and I asked that question, I want a straight answer. Like, give me a timeline, give me an event, give me a date, give me something. I'm looking for, let me know when this is going to happen you, you, so I can put it on my calendar and be ready for it, right? Let's say you asked your friend or your spouse or your children, um, when are you going to, parents, you ask your kids, when are you going to get your room clean? And your child looks at you and says, well, there will come a day when the things on my floor will no longer be, and the things in my dresser will become the things in my drawer. But until that day, the things in my closet will remain on my bed. But watch for this sign. When you can no longer open the door, you will know that the end is close. I mean, you, if you're a kid, don't even try that, guys, okay? If you try that, I promise you, it will not end well for you as kids. But if you ask your kids, when are you going to clean your room, you want a straight answer, right? If you're one of the disciples, you're like, Jesus, you just told us that some of these events are going to take place. When is it going to happen? You kind of want to know some times or some concrete dates where you can know what's going to be happening. Um, but let me ask this question. If you knew that the end of the world was going to take place on a certain date or time, would it affect the way that you live? For instance, what if you knew that the end of the world would not be for another 250 years? 
would it affect the way that you live today? What if you knew that the end of the world would be two weeks from now? Would it affect the way that you live? The disciples want to know when is this going to happen, and Jesus does not give them a direct answer. As a matter of fact, David last week covered verses 4 through 14, and we learned what's not going to be the ends of the, of the age. The signs that are just like the birth pangs, which is kind of fun talking about that with Ben and Jenna getting ready to have a baby. It's the beginning of the pains of birth of the end times, but there's still time left and quite a bit of it. This week, we're going to look at the next set of verses that give some insight into the events the disciples asked about, the signs and the second coming and the end of the age. Uh, the first thing is the signs to come. Now, now, my brain thinks kind of linear, right? I want, like, if I'm thinking of a timeline, I'm thinking of a timeline. This happens, and then this happens, and this happens, and that's the way, how many of you think linear like that when it comes to, we, we do, don't we? It kind of makes sense. Now, for me, maybe it's just genetics, maybe it's education, uh, but I think most of us are linear thinkers. If I was asking the question, um, when will these things take place, I would hope for at least a timeline and an order of things. This is how it will happen. Um, Jesus kind of does that, but while there's some structure to this response that Jesus gives, Jewish thinking is a little bit unique compared to our modern-day thinking. You're like, well, what does that mean? If you study your Bible, you'll find that when people are talking about prophetic events, uh, it can carry, those prophetic events can carry with them more than one meaning, and they can span multiple time frames. So when you hear about a specific event, it could have been in the past, or it might be in the present, or it could be in the future. So even if they give you a timeline, it's not necessarily a, a timeline. Um, for instance, let me give you a good for instance. Um, Elijah. And are you familiar with the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament, right? This great guy, lots of crazy miracles that he did. Um, in the book of First and Second Kings, we read about the ministry and the life of Elijah, Old Testament guy, right? Um, and in Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11, we have Elijah being taken up into heaven. He's one of the few people that never actually died, right? Really cool stuff. You get to the end of the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi, or Malachi, the Italian prophet, we like to call him, but he wasn't. Malachi. You get to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Last two verses of your Old Testament say this. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Well, God already did send Elijah, right? But he's going to send him again before the day of the Lord fun one to study. It's the same thing, past, present, future. That's crazy. Multiple fulfillments of the day of the Lord. So then we get to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. You're like, oh. So Elijah came Malachi said Elijah would come. Jesus is saying that John is the Elijah who was supposed to come. Okay. But then you get to Matthew 17, and it gets really confusing. We read this. The disciples asked him, why do some of the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They've, they've heard this, right? Elijah is coming, 
and will restore everything, Jesus replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him, and in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So Jesus declared that John was Elijah, but he also said, Elijah will come. John came, but Elijah will come. But Elijah also, he wasn't talking about Elijah coming back in the Old Testament. They understood that was John. So you have this past Elijah, you have a present Elijah, which was John the Baptist, and you have this future Elijah that has not yet shown up. And Jesus refers to all of them. And you're like, great. So if Jesus said, these things will happen when Elijah shows up, you'd be like, well, was that John? Was that the Elijah? Was it the one that's to come? So you don't always get this straight timeline in Hebrew thinking. And it's really important that you kind of grasp that as we're going through this. Um, because we're going to talk about a sign that Jesus is going to give them, and there is a past, a present, and a future fulfillment of that sign. And for Jesus' disciples, they got it. When we try to just pin it down to one event, I promise you we're going to miss part of the picture. And so rather than try to decipher all of the end-time events, I want to help you try to get a little bit of a glimpse into Hebrew thinking when it comes to prophecy. Just a glimpse, because I'm still like a a baby in this, and it just blows my mind when I watch it uh, unfold in front of me. So, signs of the end. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 um, that some things are going to take place, and some of them are, are past events that he's going to reference that are going to have present fulfillments as well as future fulfillments, meaning present fulfillments, meaning that they'll be probably fulfilled in the life of the disciples or the ones who are hearing but then also a future ultimate fulfillment down the road. Um, verses 13 through 35, 15 through 35 are this series of teaching. Um, so let's read them together. And as we keep in mind, as we read it, keep in mind that, that you're going to be hearing about multiple timelines in here. So Matthew 24, 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. I just want to pause there for a second. First time I read that, I felt like so insignificant. Like, I don't understand. I'm supposed to understand this, and I don't understand. Um, he's in, that's the, well, we'll get to that in a minute. But I don't know about you, but when I read that, let the reader understand. How many of you just understand completely what he means by abomination of desolation? You're like, oh, yes, I got this. Right? It's like, oh, did you have to put that phrase in there? But he did. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down and get things out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. And woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Oh, pray that your escape may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and, and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, or over here, don't, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Well, take note, I have told you in advance, so if they tell you, see, here he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or, see, he's in the storerooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. 
Isn't that one of those nice warm, like, how many of you want that in your living room? Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and it sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. All right, so David gave me the privilege of covering this abomination of desolation, and I'm, I'm going to try. So, I did. It's okay, you get the ten virgins. You're welcome. So, um, an abomination. Uh, that's a phrase we, we've heard of before. An abomination is a detestable or abhorrent thing. So, we discussed this Tuesday night. I'm Italian. Lasagna with American cheese. Abomination, right? If you like that, enjoy it. But for me, that's not right. It's something that I just can't put in my mouth. Um, what? Lord, look, it's true. Much of the Old Testament, this word is describing idols. So when you have an abomination, often it's referring to an idol that was set up. Not always, but in much of it. Um, and it's also used to describe actions that are unthinkable, or actions that you just would not expect, especially from the people of God. You ever seen somebody who says they're a Christian doing something that's really horrible, and you're like, how can you do that? if you call yourself a child of God. Um, let me read for you from Isaiah 66.3, and this list is just, it's a list of abominations. One person slaughters an ox, and another kills a person. One person sacrifices a lamb, and another breaks a dog's neck. One person offers a grain offering, and another offers pig's blood. One person offers incense, another praises an idol. All these have chosen their ways and delight in their abhorrent practices. That abhorrent practices is abominations. It's the same word there. Your version might read disgusting practices or detestable things. But it gives a pretty good context of what it means for something to be an abomination. Something that just is not right. It's not considered uh, pure or holy or just or right. And desolation is that other word. It means if something is desolate, it's barren, it's waste. Um, it's destroyed. It's to make uninhabitable, right? Like a college dorm room. It's translated in our Bible to overcome, uh, also to be overcome with dismay or to be appalled. Now, there's three major views on this abomination of desolation, of what it could be. One view says that this is a thing, that the abomination of desolation is an object, such as an idol. Some have a view that this abomination of desolation is a person. And the third view is that this abomination of desolation is an event that takes place. So you have a person, an object, or an event. Those are the three major views. And depending upon which commentaries you choose to read or which class you attend, you're going to get at least one of those views, or they might share all of them with you. In other words, we have a really good idea what this could be. But I'm going to share with you why we have these different views in just a minute here. 
Um, this phrase, abomination of desolation, is mentioned in the New Testament only in Matthew and Mark in this one passage. The only other place you have it is in the book of Daniel, and it's mentioned three times in the book of Daniel. So again, if you have your apps or if you have your Bible, get ready to flip over to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Daniel has some visions. Daniel gets to see a, a glimpse of the future, and he doesn't understand a lot of what he sees, and he gets interpretation for some of it. Um, those visions speak of uh, events where uh, pagan rulers are going to do certain things. And there's stuff that's going to happen in the temple. And so Jesus referred to Daniel. He even mentioned Daniel. He said, when the abomination of desolation is established, like Daniel said, let the reader understand. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to Daniel. So hopefully as readers, we can understand a little bit um, what he was referencing. Because he was a very specific reference going back to Daniel. The first one is Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. If you don't like end time stuff, this is probably not going to be your cup of tea. Just hang on. We'll get to some practical application at the end. But if, but if you enjoy this kind of stuff, um, you, hopefully you'll see some of the connections here in Daniel. In Daniel 9, I'm going to start in verse 26. It says this. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. And the people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war, desolation, and desol uh, desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. So in this chapter... There are events that are going to take place after so many weeks, which we actually equate to uh, years. It's interesting how the commentators have, have done that. Um, but at this one point, there's going to be somebody who is not the Messiah in the temple who is going to stop temple sacrifices and set up the abomination of desolation on a wing of the temple. Well, from this we get the perspective that the abomination of desolation is an object. It's something that will be set up on a, in a wing of the temple, on a wing of the temple. And that's where most people get that perspective, perspective of it being an object from. All right, so then Daniel has more dreams and more visions. You jump ahead to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is about two kings, king of the north and the king of the south, battling against each other. And the king of the south is going to keep, keep attacking the king of the north and keep attacking the king of the north. And eventually, the king of the north is going to attack the king of the south and take him out. And in Daniel 11.31, it says this, His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will, they will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. Again, an object is... So you have this king of the north that's going to come down, desecrate the temple, abolish temple sacrifice, and set up the abomination of desolation. One chapter later, chapter 12, Daniel says this in verse 8. I heard but did not understand. Now, how many of you are feeling that right now? Right? I heard but did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? And in verse 9 of chapter 12, he said, Go on your way, Daniel, for the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, 
but the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Happy is the one who waits for and reaches 1,335 days. But as for you, go on your way, you will rest, and then you will stand to receive your allotted inheritance at the end of the days. So basically, we have this third prediction of the abomination of desolation being set up, and Daniel's told it's not going to be in his lifetime. You will rest, that's the idiom for you will, you will die, and then you will then be, get your reward at the end of the days, right, in the last days. Okay, so there you have it. Makes a lot of sense now, right? Let the reader understand. Three very obscure prophecies. I'm sure it's much clearer now. Uh, Daniel was in exile when he wrote these things. He was uh, taken by the Babylonians. And when Daniel was taken captive, the temple was still standing. When he was first taken captive. During his captivity, the temple was actually um, ransacked. Um, but Daniel's writing took place around the 500s BC. And around 167 BC, there's an event that took place. I want to read for you uh, one of the commentaries that I have here. Um, the desolation sacrilege, that is, um, which is first called the detestable, abominable, um, the, the abomination of desolation, to God and his people, um, this phrase is drawn from Daniel 9, 11, and 12, where it commonly is understood as a prediction of Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king who in 167 BC slaughtered a pig on the altar of burnt offerings and erected an idol of Olympian Zeus on the altar in the temple. So in 167, you have Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian king that came in and then abolished the sacrifices slaughtered a pig on the altar. Does that sound like something we talked about? That one verse we just read about people offering pig's blood, right? Offered a pig on the altar and then set up um, an idol of Zeus in the temple. So in Daniel's prophecy, there's this abomination of desolation that he talked about that many believe was fulfilled in 167 B.C., by the time Jesus was speaking about this abomination, those events had already taken place. And yet Jesus mentioned that there will be another time when the abomination of desolation will be happening again. So there was a past event, but there's still another version of this that's going to happen. So many scholars believe that this is the destruction of the temple by Rome. Matthew's gospel is written around 60 AD, uh, 60 AD and the temple in Rome was destroyed in 70. The, the temple, excuse me, was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Um, and the, the Daniel 7 passage talks about times of when things will happen. Most commentators have actually taken those times and looked at them and realized that that's right about the time that the Messiah would be here and also right around the time of 70 AD. So here's a commentary. Everybody agrees that this prediction is predicting the destruction of the temple. In a sense, the sacrilege would have occurred when the zealots went into the most holy place, and the zealots were people who were trying to, uh, well, Simon was a zealot, people who were trying to uh, take, take back what was God's. 
Uh, they went to the most holy place, and when the Romans leveled the temple in its sanctuary, um, Nolan describes the event as, in, as the temple lay in flames, and the Roman army brought their standards into the temple court opposite the eastern gate, made sacrifices to their gods, and declared Titus um, imperator. So they, they claimed this, they claimed this um, Roman person to be a god, and they offered sacrifices to their gods in this temple. In the, in the temple. So Jesus is saying that there's going to be this abomination of desolation that takes place. And many people believe that that happened in AD 70 as well. However, however, when you read all of what Matthew 24 says, not all of those things took place at that time, did they? <coughs> did, did the skies turn dark? Did the skies fall out of the sky? Did all of these things take place? Is there another fulfillment of this yet? And when you're thinking about Hebrew prophecy, it's not a question of are there multiple um, possible timelines for this, but how many of them could there possibly be? Um, I want to read for you a passage from Daniel and then take you to the New Testament to see what happens. So a little bit further in Daniel chapter 11, we read about this king of the north, and I want you to hear a description of the king of the north. 11, Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. Then this king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed because what, he has, what has been decreed will be accomplished. He will not show regard for the gods of his ancestors, the god desired by women, or for any other god because he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor the god of fortresses, a god his ancestors did not know, with gold and silver and precious stones and riches. And he will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. And he will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing lands as rewards. So this king of the north, when he accomplishes his work, is going to establish, say that he is above all other gods, that he is above Yahweh and any other god that his nation, that his people even knew. All right. We're almost done with this part. Hang in there. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul shares signs of the ends of the age, or the day of the Lord, which is another, by the way, great past, present, future thing to chase down, as I've already mentioned. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4 says this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is again what the disciples were asking about, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled either by a prophecy or by a message or by, letting, uh, or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in this way. I want to pause there just for a second. There were teachings that because of what took place in Rome, that the day of the Lord had come. So Paul is saying, listen, if you hear this, don't, don't be dismayed. For that day will not come unless the apostasy first comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. This is where you get the person and the event of the abomination of desolation 
being one of those understandings of what it could be. These things won't happen until that person, that king, that king of the north person who declares himself above all other gods, sits in the temple and says, I am God, and I am the only God, and I am above all other gods. That's when this will start to happen. So you have an event, a person, an object, you have a past, you had a present in their day, you have a future fulfillment of this, and your brain just goes, and Matthew says, yeah, let the reader understand. I think we're meant to understand some things about this, that there is a day coming where there will be such opposition to God that it will be unmistakable when it happens, that you won't miss it when it happens. Paul and, and, and Daniel both seem to point to this one future fulfillment that has yet to take place um, when this man of lawlessness sits in the temple. So when we read Matthew 24, 15, and we read, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, we should recognize that there is a, a past event that the reader should know about, let the reader understand, that there's a coming event that the disciples will see in their generation and in their day when, when Rome comes. And there's also a future fulfillment of this that Paul even mentioned in his letters to the Thessalonians about a day that will be down the road when the, at the last day, um, at the end of the ages, at the end of the age. So just like Elijah had come, came, and will come, you have this abomination of desolation, had come, is coming, and will come. Then um, the struggle is very real. I'm trying to figure out like, how many of these things take place. You, you read about things in this passage about um, it'll be a trouble like nobody else has ever seen. And for that reason, many people have taken events like, well, let's just take Hitler. Remember, this is the Jewish nation we're talking about. I don't think that there was another nation that ever did to the Jews what Hitler did. But that doesn't make him the lawless man, necessarily, right? And people have been trying to pinpoint who is this man of lawlessness, who is this? That's really not the point of these chapters for us today. We should be looking for signs, and it's good to study the scriptures. Um, but David reminded us that people have been trying to point out who is the Antichrist or who is, when is the end of the age, who, when is this end, and when is the end going to come, and they've missed, on, and that's intentional. Um, so hopefully, this little bit of Hebrew mindset is helpful to you, and I didn't just make things muddier for you, um, and hopefully I didn't just bore you to tears with that, but when we read Scripture and we read prophecy, you have to understand that, that in the Hebrew mindset, it's not always just a single event. Often it has with it many different fulfillments throughout time. Um, and ultimately, there's usually that ultimate fulfillment. For instance, the last days, there is the last day. There will be the abomination. Um, so uh, there will be the Elijah that will come. So rather than predict the times, uh, we're going to spend the remainder of our time quickly going through just some application, I think, from this chapter on what we should be looking for today. Um, so in Matthew 24, 15 through 22, it said this, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetops must not come down and get things out of his house. A man in the field must not go back to, his, to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that, you may, that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until, 
now and never will again. And unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. So when this, these events take place, those that are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. The mountains are the safe place um, for them. The safe place won't be inside a walled city. It won't be in the city where the temple is. The safe place will be up in the mountains. Um, and whether this is talking about the conquest of Rome or the, referring to the very last days, uh, we have to realize that this will be a time like no other where people will have to flee for their lives. It's interesting that he says, pray that it won't be in winter. Can you imagine fleeing your home without a vehicle to go into the mountains in the wintertime? Or on a Sabbath. Now, why would that be important? Well, they still wanted to honor God in the Sabbath. Matter of fact, they actually started looking at this and saying, okay, but if there's a time of distress, we have permission to break the Sabbath. <laughs> they actually started establishing laws like that. If it's a Sabbath, you can only go a Sabbath day's journey. What if you have to flee and you can only go so far without dishonoring God? Now you have to choose, do I dishonor God or save my life? Oh, pray that it's not on a Sabbath, is what he says. But I love the fact that there's this thread of hope. And David talked about the thread of hope when we started chapter 23. If these times weren't cut short, he says, then there'd be nobody left. But they will be cut short so that there will be a remnant. There will be a people that God will preserve on this earth. A remnant. And God has always had a remnant, a people that he preserves. Even when he's bringing judgment on the nation, he's always spared some so that there would be uh, a people for his possession. Um, so then we get to this perusia, this, which means what? What does perusia mean? Coming, right? And in Matthew 24, 23, if anyone tells you, see, here's the Messiah, or over here, don't believe it, false messiahs and false prophets will arise. He says, I've told you in advance. In verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. This passage talks about the return of Jesus, which will be at the end of the age. And there will be many false reports, but that day will come and it will be sudden, and I don't think we'll be able to miss it because of the description we have. 2 Peter 3, verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved in the earth, and all the works in it will be disclosed. Uh, Jesus said he would return, but he didn't give us the exact time. He also said it would be without much notice, like lightning. It will come at the appointed time, and it will be visible. It will be something you will not miss, just like lightning lights up the sky from one end to the other. So Jesus really did answer what the signs would be like of the coming. It'll be sudden, it'll be instant, you'll know it when it gets there. And there'll be certain things that'll take place, the abomination of desolation, some other stuff that will take place. But also in 2 Peter, we read this, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. You say, well, how come these things haven't happened? With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I believe there's an encouragement in this passage. When you're asking about when is the Lord going to come and why hasn't he come yet, and we have a saying in Christian circles, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? Because we would look forward to the day when we don't have to struggle with sin and the, and the problems of this world. And we're reminded from Peter that God doesn't delay the way we think of delays. 
but he takes his time in this because he wants more people to know him. He wants more people to have a chance to hear the good news of Jesus and to respond. That means that if you and I remain on this earth, that God's given us one more day to be his ambassadors. He's given us one more opportunity to make sure that the people around us get a chance to hear about him. So the hope for us is not to be thinking about, oh, is he going to come back? When is he going to come back? But he hasn't come back yet. And since he hasn't come back, I still have something I need to be doing here because he wants people to come to know him. And so I need to be faithful to share him with, with others until he comes back. So then we're told to watch for the signs in Matthew 24. Learn from the fig tree. Fig tree is an interesting tree. I did a little bit of studying on it. It, it starts with its buds in the early, uh, late spring, and then it sits like dormant, like nothing really happens until the end of the season, and all of a sudden it's, like, it's almost like you've got your, your phone on, on time-lapse, like, and just immediately the fruit just grows so fast at the end of the season. But you know when it buds that you're hitting summer. He's saying, listen, you'll know when you see these signs that the end is near. Um, the phrase that's tough in this one is this generation. This generation, these th- will not pass until all these things take place. Well, the disciples are gone a couple of thousand years ago, and the end hasn't come. So now we're wrestling with what does this generation mean? It could mean that this generation, the disciples, would see some of these events that were talked about, like the abomination of desolation set up being the destruction of Rome, but they wouldn't see the ultimate fulfillment of it. It could mean this generation being a new generation, a new people who have their faith in Christ, that that people group would not cease to be on the earth until the fulfillment of all things. Two different views that people have on that. So I want to put those out there for you to chew on. Watch for the signs. But they shouldn't be a distraction, but a constant reminder that he's coming back. So that brings us to the when. When will these things take place? Matthew 24, 36. Concerning the day and the hour, nobody knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. And let, of course, like I said, David gave us some, prediction, um, some examples last week. But here's the thought about people who want to predict when Jesus is going to return. If the Father didn't even tell the Son... and the son didn't know, why would any human think that they've got it figured out? Just throwing that one out there. And I know I can approach the rest of this passage and know that I'm not going to get a specific time. I'm not going to get a specific date because I've been told that. So as we read, it says this, concerning the day and hour no one knows, As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't even know the flood was coming until it swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Two men will be in a field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill and one will be taken and one left. Therefore be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this. If the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you also are to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So we don't know. People will be surprised for sure. Now, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, right? I was, I was born in the late 60s. And in, the, in 1972, there was a movie that came out. 
and it was about the end times. It was called The Thief in the Night. Any of you ever hear about that movie? I had nightmares over that movie. Oh my gosh, that scared me so much as a kid. I watched that movie and people were just like gone and there's like their clothes are in a little pile over here and the people are gone. I remember like waking up in the middle of the night thinking, is my family still here? Did he leave me behind? Am I st I'm still here. Why am I still here? And, and they realized, oh, everybody's still here. Okay. Whew. They actually came out with four movies over the course of uh, 1972 into the mid 80s, uh, four movie series on this. And you're probably more familiar with the newer versions of these, right? The Left Behind series. Are you familiar with those? So this fascination with the end times and what it's going to be like is, is nothing that's new. Um, I, I was so scared as a kid. I don't recommend showing those to kids that are, um, you know, like under 14 or 16 because it's just, it'll freak them out. Um, but when he says be ready, he's not saying have your bags packed because you're not going to take anything with you that's going to matter. Um, he's not saying that you should be like they were in the Passover where they have their coats on and their staff ready because it's, it's not like that with the Passover. So what does being ready mean? Um, I think being ready means that we have that relationship with Jesus ahead of time. There are people who will spend their lives saying, well, at some point, I'll, I'll give my life to Jesus. <clears throat> I get a glass of water, please. <clears throat> at some point, I'll give my life to Jesus. At some point, I'll be done living the way that I am, and I'll live for God. Thank you. <clears throat> but that day is going to come quick and without notice, like the flood did, and you won't have that opportunity. And so I think that being ready means knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It means having that personal relationship with our Father so that when he comes, you're ready. You're ready for that day. So if you've been a procrastinator in saying, you know, I'll live the way that I want now and someday I'll get right with God, this passage is saying don't do that. We have an obligation to act while we can and we have an opportunity to act while we can. And I guess what I don't understand is why would you want to wait Knowing what God has been in my life, why would you want to wait for that in your life when you can have that relationship and that connection with your Father starting today? What you think you're giving up, you're not. And what you will actually gain, you can't even comprehend. So why wait? Be ready. And the last part of our passage is verses 45 through 51. It says, Who then is faithful is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give him food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. But truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that wicked servant says in his heart, my master is delayed and starts to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, that servant's master will come on the day he does not expect and an hour he does not know will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites <clears throat> where there will be no weeping, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For those of us that do know God personally through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're encouraged to be faithful to him. You notice that in the previous passage, Jesus said, listen, if the person who knew the thief was coming, if he knew what hour the thief was going to come, he'd be ready for it. 
Do you think there's a reason why Jesus didn't give them an exact day and time? And then he goes on to say, listen, um, if you just think that you don't need to do stuff for God because he's been delayed, you're really messing it up. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe that we are in the last days? Jesus said we are. Do you believe that Jesus will come again? Jesus said he would. So let me go back to that question from the beginning. If you knew when Jesus would return, how would it affect the way that you live? If you knew he was coming next week, would you be more generous with what you have knowing you wouldn't need it? Does that sound like any lessons Jesus gave us in the Gospel of Matthew? Right? If you knew... Matter of fact, unfortunately, there have been a lot of religious leaders who have abused this and taken everything from people, saying the Lord is going to return, so you must just sell everything and just give it to me. And they've abused people with it. But if you knew the Lord was going to return tomorrow, it wouldn't matter. Well, your car doesn't matter, your house doesn't matter, your food doesn't matter, you'd share freely because you wouldn't need it, right? If you knew Jesus was going to be delayed, it's going to come 2,000 years from now, would you just start thinking, oh, I guess it doesn't matter. He'll fix stuff over the next 2,000 years. What I do won't make a big difference because it's 2,000 years from now and people are just going to keep getting worse. The disciples wanted to know when these things would take place and Jesus intentionally did not give them a date or time. Instead, he gave them the encouragement to live faithfully while they wait for these things to take place. And for you and me, I think that's the lesson that we need to grab onto. We can study end times. We can study the abomination of desolation. We can dive into Daniel and Revelation. I had a whole, a whole semester with just Daniel Revelation as one of my classes, and my head exploded as the professor talked about all these things. I have commentaries on it. Yeah, we can study all that, but the question is, how are we living while we're waiting for the return? If you love learning about end time events, that's awesome. You can spend hundreds of hours just studying these passages in Daniel. By all means, do that. That's so cool. But make sure that our studies don't deter us from living out the calling that we have from our Father. Live each day as a gift from God, as if the day that Jesus was coming back would be today or tomorrow, and you'll get a chance to meet your Father in heaven. The ends of the age, the coming of Jesus, and the end time events shouldn't scare us. <laughs> Nor should they consume us with trying to figure out when. What they should do is motivate us to live with the end in mind, God's end in mind, and make the most of every single day. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, and then David will come and close us in prayer. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us Consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some is in the habit are doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us consider how we can encourage one another to live for God as lights in the world around us, and even more as we see that day approaching. So we can stand before our Father and be pleased with the life that we've lived for him.